You're listening to KCBP Community Radio at 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Laura Stokes. And I'm Linda Scheller. Today on Women of the Valley, my guest is Liz Talbot. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I understand you grew up in the area. Could you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Manteca. Uh, I lived there until I left for college and I, where I attended UC Santa Cruz. Uh, but yeah, I grew up in Manteca um, with a single parent for most of my early childhood years. And my family was actually really conservative um, and not uh, super politically engaged. Uh, my grandparents were probably the most vocal politically. They were Reagan Republicans. Um, and interestingly, they really uh, were also quite actively pro-choice. Um, so even though I grew up with political conservatism as kind of the base of family conversations, there was always this understanding that that women should have the right to choose. Um, and Interestingly, um, my grandmother is now quite liberal. <laughs> uh, Trump actually uh, brought her over to the Democrat side, and uh, some of that because of her her pro choice leanings. And uh, she she proudly voted blue all the way down her ticket this uh, in the past few elections. She's still around at ninety one and still living in Matika. Were there any people or educational experiences that contributed to your? sort of uh, becoming more active, more inclined toward, um, let's say, liberal or progressive politics? Yeah, definitely. So when I was in uh, my first few years of college, I actually went to Delta College in Stockton at first because I was only 16 when I graduated from high school. My parents weren't keen on the idea of me moving to Berkeley, uh, which is my original My original intent was to move to Berkeley. Um the Rodney King uh, verdict uh, and incident occurred then. And it was really interesting because even though my family was conservative, I didn't realize the amount of racism that ran deep. And that really shook me. Not only the, the experience that we were all experiencing as a country and as a region, but also kind of this internal realization of, wait a minute, like if my family that seems like decent people could have these very racist beliefs, um, how did I not recognize that? Uh, and that really kind of shook me. And, and I got a lot more politically involved. Um, I joined the College Democrats at uh, at Delta College in Stockton and just started to get more involved. I did some phone banking for some local candidates and really carried that forward with me into my into my young adult life. Um, I actually wasn't even able to vote yet, um, and really just tried to do my part. So I'm very excited to see so much activism from some of our younger activists these days as well. Was there much diversity in the schools you attended? Not really. Um, so growing up in Manteca, um, like in many areas here, the majority of the students were either white or Hispanic. Um, a handful of black students, um, but not a lot of, not a lot of diversity. Um, and that just was really interesting to me. And I just remember thinking how, how challenging that may have been. Um, 
you know, for, for people that were, you know, truly in the minority in, in their communities. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, I don't have a lot of experiences as a young child recognizing racism that occurred, but I also recognize that I was a young white child. Uh, and as I got to be older, I really started to notice a lot of the, not even just microaggressions, but straight up aggressions that people, um, people of color and, and black people and, and indigenous people in my community experienced. Um, and I was really eager to get out of the valley initially for that reason. And um, finishing up in college, I thought, you know what? I, the place for me is really to go back home. And, you know, it's very easy to be liberal in Santa Cruz. <laughs> uh, not so easy necessarily in, in this part of the state. And to me, that seemed to better speak to where we need to be lifting up voices and finding opportunities and making connections to, to build better lives for the people here. How do you feel about this um, pushback against any elements in education that would bring to light the treatment of Native Americans and African Americans in American history? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that... Um, I think it speaks a lot to fear. Uh, I think many people, when confronted with unearned privilege, um, we often have internalized that as that's just the way that it is, right? And uh, not recognizing that those genuinely are unearned privileges. You know, the, the color of my skin has opened up opportunities for me unfairly, right? Um, and certainly many things I've accomplished in my life have because have been because I've worked very hard. I also am aware that other folks may work just as hard, if not harder, and because of all the obstacles to get to get where they are, um, because of racism, internalized racism, systemic racism, all of those things just make it infinitely more difficult. And honestly, like, it shouldn't be a measure of whether or not you're working hard, right? We should just have a basic amount of decency that we afford to all people. And um, I, so I think a lot of the pushback comes from that fear and that that thought that, um, you know, people living within their own, uh, you know, everyone's kind of the, the hero of their own story, right? So if, if we feel like, well, my individual life has been challenging, right? Um, therefore, racism doesn't exist, right? Or therefore, sexism doesn't exist because my own life has been challenging and I'm a straight white man or whatever the scenario is. Uh, that makes it very difficult for folks like, you know, that have that mindset to step out of that to say, wow, imagine how much more difficult uh, things might be. And, I, you know, I like the quote that, says something to the effect of, you know, white privilege doesn't mean that you don't have challenge, right? It just means that your whiteness wasn't the reason for your challenge. What challenges have you faced in your career as a woman? You know, I, I have been uh, fortunate in many ways in that the majority of my career uh, has been in healthcare. Uh, which typically is more of a woman-dominated field, um, although very often still the senior leadership, um, CEOs, chief medical officers, that type of stuff has often uh, been men. That so I I feel very fortunate to have 
found kind of a very women-centered path. Um, that doesn't mean that those challenges don't exist, <laughs> you know, as it relates to sexism or, um, or you know, challenges of that sort. I think that often there's um, a perception of cattiness, you know, that sometimes can arise, um, that sometimes that behavior gets excused. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I've really been fortunate to, um, you know, to, to find a good path for myself. Uh, a lot of the challenges that have that I've experienced in my career have been more related to the systemic issues related to the work. So uh, a lot of my work has been with people who are underserved or under-resourced or in marginalized communities, such as working with LGBTQ people or people of color, poor women. And those are often the first programs to face budget cuts, to face... Um, continual intentional under-resourcing, right? So, you know, they might say, oh, we're going to make a program to serve this population. And we know it probably takes a million dollars to do this work, but we're going to give you 25,000. Um, so some of those those challenges haven't necessarily been toward me personally, uh, but have certainly made it harder for, for myself and my peers and my colleagues and the communities we work with to genuinely get to where uh, we know that they they deserve to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that speaks to the point that these are women and children. And uh, do you see a real discrepancy then in, in the resources and attention paid to them? For sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of the the, the interesting work now um, in healthcare, particularly around maternal child health, has to do with finally starting to have conversations, at least, around uh, Black women's uh, mortality in, you know, in childbirth and, and shortly thereafter. Um, I think that hasn't had a lot of attention, and you know, it's it's just shocking if if you kind of look into some of that that data and some of the experiences that women uh, women of color, Black women, face around even access to maternal health uh, to prenatal care. Do you have any statistics uh, that you can enlighten us with? Wow, not off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and they just they, you know, it's just it's amazing, and it, it and I I wish I was more prepared more prepared to give you that answer. Um, yeah, I've read it's 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 an appalling, shocking uh, discrepancy. But right, and and you know, the interesting thing about it is that uh, you know. I, I suspect that we'll have more conversations around abortion rights, but I think very often we forget that in the states where where when and if Roe is overturned, abortion becomes illegal, it's not as if women in those states have great prenatal care options or great child care options or great um, access to health care. You know, those the women in those states also have a terrible time getting those services. Yeah. And those are very often um, women of color, black women, poor women, um, you know, women who, um, you know, who otherwise just don't have the same, the same options, you know, middle class and upper class white women will always have access mm -hmm. to abortion and, and prenatal care, and all of the services that that make a civilized society. It seems to me a lot of this boils down to de facto segregation, which is largely based on economic status 
and there's been this systemic discrimination for generations. So I'm really, really glad you're doing the work you are in bringing awareness to these differences. Thank you. Could you talk a bit about your career trajectory when you decided to go into healthcare and, uh, you know, the story? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. So we'll see. We'll see if you agree. Um, so as I mentioned, I went to Delta College for uh, for two years after I graduated from high school. And uh, then I found my way to UC Santa Cruz. Uh, I have a bachelor's in psychology from Santa Cruz. And I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into counseling or kind of what exactly I wanted to do. But I knew I wanted to be able to... Um, I wanted to be able to help people. That's kind of the, the general feeling that a lot of young adults feel. And um, I, I found my way to the student health center. Um, I, I ended up getting a really bad flu right when I started college. And so I spent a little bit of time there and I was looking at some of the services that they had to offer. And a friend of mine had never had a PAP before. Like she had never had her women's health exam. And she knew that they offered that there. And so what we discovered was that you could volunteer as a student to basically be a handholder at the Student Health Center. So um, if you needed a friend to come with you, uh, you could certainly bring one. But we were sort of volunteer friends in this regard. Uh, so my, my classmate and I did that uh, for a little while and then um, really started to get interested in HIV testing. Um, this was in the mid-90s, right? So uh, HIV testing was was still um, not readily accessible for many people. And the campus started offering um, HIV testing on campus. Um, so I, I got all of the training that I needed to do to become an HIV test counselor. Back then, it was like a week-long training. It was very intensive, um, much different these days if someone wanted to find their way into that field. And it was just really interesting to me. Um, it was very interesting um, to, to discover that many people who seek HIV test counseling will, will get tested multiple times before they actually go back to get the result. So there's often a lot of, you know, f fear and, and trepidation around what the results might be. Um, this is less true now uh, because of the treatment and, you know, all the things that have occurred over the last, gosh, 30 years. Um, but then it was very, it was very different and it was, it was a much scarier time. Um, so I did that um, for the two years that I was at UC Santa Cruz and also I started an on-site, an on-campus condom delivery service called No Excuses, and I had a pager. This was back when people had pagers, and uh, kind of flyered the campus with UC Santa Cruz's their mascot. UC Santa Cruz's mascot is the banana slug, so it was a banana slug with a condom over its whole body. That was my my design. <laughs> this was all very funky, like dot matrix printer created things. And um, so I did, I did condom delivery on Friday and Saturday nights. My, my boyfriend at the time helped me with that project. And it continued a couple years after I graduated. Um, I really got a passion for that. And I really, I never had any difficulty talking about sexual, sexual health, reproductive health. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my family was politically conservative, but pretty open and pro-choice around uh, sexual health types of issues. So after after I graduated, I came back home to the Valley and uh, pretty quickly uh, found a job teaching sex ed. 
So I went to work for a great organization called Delta Healthcare in Stockton. Uh, they're much, they're still around, but they're much different. Uh, they have a much different structure these days. Um, and I, I taught sex ed. I, I worked at juvenile halls and middle schools and high schools. It was very interesting. It was probably the the most fun job I've ever had. It was essentially stand up comedy for middle school kids. It was it was very fun. And uh, just from there, I, I got a lot more, more involved in kind of program planning, project management, uh, grant grant development, grant writing, and really found that a lot of my skills and talents were really connected to that human connection piece. So kind of drawing on that psychology degree and, and looking at how can I, one, how can I provide direct service, but also how can I make sure that people are getting the services that they need? How can I bring up new um, new health educators and new um, activists and new organizers? Because I'm just one person. I can only talk to so many people. But if I get a group of 10 people, we can now we can reach 100 people and it can expand exponentially from there. I found my way uh, to Planned Parenthood eventually, um, worked at the local Planned Parenthood for 10 years. And then I, from there, went to Golden Valley Health Centers, where I was the education and outreach program manager. And now I work um, for the for Stanislaus County. Oh, thank you. You're listening to KCBP Community Radio, and this is Women of the Valley with your host, Linda Scheller, and our guest today, Liz Talbot. I read that one of the things you did was homeless street medicine. Uh, you were the director of that program. Could you please tell us about it? I would love to tell you about that. So that program still exists at Golden Valley Health Centers. Um, it was a partnership between our organization, between Golden Valley Health Centers and uh, Sutter Gould's Foundation. They are a great partner with um, Healthcare for the Homeless. So um, they had some grant opportunity, Golden Valley pursued it, and uh, we were able to get a street medicine van. So we had a licensed vocational nurse and a, and a health educator who partnered with um, local shelters, local community groups that served people experiencing homelessness. And we literally drove our minivan around Stanislaus and Merced counties, uh, finding folks in encampments um, along riverbanks, um, intense. And it was a lot of relationship building. The nurse who was involved in that project at the time, her name is Hortensia. She's um, off going to uh, become a registered nurse now. Um, so she was just phenomenal. And, and she had the heart for that work. Uh, she was really a huge reason why that project was successful. And they did uh, primarily wound care, um, they also, because, you know, homeless folks develop a lot of wounds, particularly on their feet from, you know, having to walk everywhere and, and really just not having access to dry, clean socks and, you know, all the things that, that many of us take, take for granted. What was excellent about this project was the team's response when COVID began. So uh, this, of course, uh, people experiencing homelessness are among the most vulnerable um, to all kinds of disease. If you can imagine the challenges that, that people who are housed have with maybe managing a chronic condition, uh, imagine trying to do that while, while living in, you know, in the rough. Um, it's just, it's nearly impossible uh, for many people. When COVID began, a lot of programs just stopped doing their outreach. So they they maybe still had some open office hours where people could come by their facility, but that direct one-on-one -on -one 
human to human contact stopped. And one of the key things we provided was fresh, clean drinking water. Uh, So many people, those were some of the services that just were gone overnight. So drinking water, food, clean socks, feminine hygiene products, someone to look at their wound, someone to check their blood sugar, their blood pressure, all of those things really dried up for a lot of people, but not with the, the Golden Valley Project. That project continued on. They were in like a spacesuit of PPE. I mean, they were very well uh, protected as best as they could with the information that existed at the time. Um, and of course, as soon as vaccine started up, right, uh, those staff were among the first to get vaccinated and to start uh, providing vaccination uh, for people experiencing homelessness as well. And I just think they they genuinely, even before the pandemic began, they were truly a lifeline for many people. They served thousands of people every year. And I'm, I'm really glad that project still continues. And one of the things that's excellent, uh, that's also work I'm continuing now that I'm no longer kind of directly involved with the direct healthcare service provision is just the the work of um, some of our other homeless serving organizations and partnerships. Um, So I do serve as the vice chair of the Stanislaus Homeless Alliance, um, which is a partnership group with um, the community system of care. So we're essentially an advisory group, mostly of elected officials. What's excellent with that work is we're really starting to work on implementing the homeless strategic plan. And there's a piece in there this that is specific to access to healthcare. And not only access to healthcare, right? Because you might have access because it exists, but you can't actually get to it or it's the hours don't they're not amenable to actually finding services or it's far from you. So um, some of those pieces are really underway and a lot of work really kind of starting to focus on recognizing that housing is healthcare. Um and, and it's really trying to, to connect those pieces a little bit more, not only for the people who knew the services, but for the people that write the policies as well. To what extent would you, um, you know, say approximately there are homeless people because of their health problems and the inaffordability of getting treatment and the debt they incurred and, you know, all the things that go with having a serious health condition in America. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that I can give you a specific statistic. Uh, However, um, health care related expenses is one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. Uh, And so certainly, you know, many folks, you know, maybe they have a really high deductible insurance plan if they have one at all. And an accident could, could cripple them um, financially. And, And really, you know, Many folks are already one paycheck away from homelessness. Um, so compounding that with finding out that you have a chronic condition uh, where insulin can cost way more than it should and access to healthy foods just aren't attainable for many people. Um, not only access to the food, but how to prepare it. Uh, some of our programs limit people's ability to buy um, hot and prepared food, right? So you can buy all the fresh fruits and vegetables that you want, but if you don't have a way to prepare them, uh, that can be really difficult. And it's just, it's very expensive to be poor. Um, yeah, so, so it's its its just definitely a, a huge issue for people. And, and often people that, you know, are lower income 
um, or people experiencing homelessness, they often live in very high volume housing. So they might live in a congregate setting like a shelter, or they might be uh, tripling up in a single family home, um, where just the ability to, to care for oneself becomes more and more challenging. As someone who has worked in healthcare for so many years, what policies would you like to see both at the local, state, and federal level? Well, you know, I think um, healthcare for all immediately pops into my into my mind, right? And I think for many people, that's when they turn off the TV, right? Anytime they hear that, they like forget that that person is a socialist or whatever, right? But just the fact that we have to even have arguments over whether or not people should al- be allowed to live a healthy life is just appalling to me. Um, I think that just that just seems like something we should all just naturally agree on. And, you know, a lot of people attack that idea because of the cost. But the cost of not doing that is far higher than the cost would ever be of, of ensuring that people um, not only have a way to pay for care, but genuinely have access to it, right? Um, you know, we have a huge issue in, in the Central Valley with access to specialty care, um, so, you know, those those things can be a, a big concern, um, even if you have people with insurance. And it just becomes so much more difficult. Um, people who, providers who will take Medi-Cal uh, can sometimes be challenging, um, particularly for our, our neighbors who live in the more uh, remote or distant parts of our county. I'm thinking of East Side, such as Waterford, uh, Hickman, um, with the West Side, like Newman, Wesley, I mean, some of those communities, um, you know, maybe there's a primary care physician in their town, uh, but maybe they don't take Medi-Cal or um, they're only opened, you know, eight to five and this person has to commute or travel a long distance to to work. And it just it just becomes so much more difficult for people. So, so I would like to just make sure that the cost isn't a question, right? Because without that access, um, it's, it just doesn't exist. Um, but but um, that's a loftier goal for for many for many things. And certainly there are things that we can put in put in place between now and then. And I think um, expanding um, expanding access to to Medi-Cal uh, to ensure that we're that you know that everyone, regardless of their immigration status, should be able to to get Medi-Cal if they otherwise qualify uh, would would really go a long way in helping ensure that people have uh, people aren't falling through the cracks. Um, I think that um, expanded access to urgent care even uh, would be useful uh, because there's a lot that happens outside of regular business hours that isn't necessarily an emergency. Um, people going to an emergency room vastly increases costs for everyone. I think that um, access to access to housing is a big is a big deal, and I think that we are working on adding some more um, transitional housing, permanent supportive housing, uh, because it's important to remember that shelters aren't housing; they are shelters. They are meant to be temporary, and there are a lot of valid reasons why people choose to not live in a shelter. 
Um, so I think some of the, the innovative things that like the city of Modesto is working on, such as the safe camping locations um, where, again, still not housing, uh, but certainly um, potentially could give people a safer place to be um, more of a community, increasing their chance of seeking additional supportive services that might help them um, end their homelessness. I think those types of policies, uh, while again, they're housing policies, they have a direct impact on the, the overall health of our communities as well. Is Golden Valley Healthcare uh, funded by the state? Yeah, so they're a they're a nonprofit. They're uh, Golden Valley is a federally qualified health center, uh, so they do receive federal funds. Um, they also are a medical provider, so so they receive um, pay you know payment through through the medical system for the patients that they serve. Um, Golden Valley, as well as Livingston Community Health, um, that's the other federally qualified health center provider locally. They're what's considered a safety net provider. Um, so if someone is uninsured or underinsured, uh, they can get care there as well. Oh, that's great. You're on the Waterford City Council. I uh, sure am. Please talk about uh, how you got involved in that. Uh, yeah, I'd love to tell you more about that. So I, I moved to Waterford in 2010. Uh, my husband, he's my husband now, he was not my husband then. Um, we met in, in Modesto where I, I moved after I got divorced and um, we decided we wanted to live together. It was love at first sight and we, we wanted to live together. And he said, hey, I have this house in Waterford. And honestly, I said, where is Waterford? I wasn't familiar with it because again, I was mostly a San Joaquin County resident before then. So we went out there and it was just charming city, um, you know, small right there along the Tuolumne River. He did take me to Sucasita for lunch, which is this local Mexican restaurant that's just, it's a treasure. It's so delicious. And I was sold. I was sold on the cute house and the delicious Mexican food and the, the river at the end of the road. So uh, we moved there. My son was uh, almost four at the time. And I knew that the schools in that area were quite good. So, you know, I had this smart little kid that I wanted to, to bring up in good schools. So, you know, I just, it looked like a great place to raise my family. And again, coming from a lifetime of political activism, um, I really started to look around like, hmm, what happens in this city? And I couldn't find anything out. So I would ask my neighbors like, oh, what is, when does the city council meet? And what do they do here? And what kind of community events are there? And there just really wasn't a lot of knowledge from the residents of the things that were there. They, of course, have a city council. So I found my way to start going to city council meetings. And, and frankly, often I was the only person in the audience. And um, that was just really interesting. And it was the, the meetings, of course, are quick. It's a small city. There's not a lot of controversial issues. There's not a lot of um, things beyond kind of the the day-to-day -day running of a city. Um, their, their budget is not super large, you know, so, so it wasn't like there were these five-hour-long contentious meetings. But part of the reason for that is because the community wasn't particularly civically engaged, right? So um, almost all the votes were 5-0, you know, in support of whatever the particular thing was. And again, most of the things weren't really controversial. It was water bills and you know, parks and, you know, those types of kind of the bread and butter things of a city. Uh, and then one of the things that that began to happen was um, some movement around the state around um, sanctuary city types of things. And 
Waterford decided to pass a resolution in opposition of the sanctuary state rules, even though this had literally nothing to do with the state rule. It, the city would not be impacted by this resolution in any way. It was an act of political theater. And it really made me angry. <laughs> and having been aware of the fact that meeting after meeting after meeting, there was no one but me at the meetings, right? I knew that at this particular meeting, there was going to be a crowd, so I attended. Um, the, the room was packed. I think Univision was there filming um, for, you know, because this was this was kind of a big deal culturally that this was happening in a city that's nearly a majority Latino. Right. It's a, it's a lower income city. Um, again, like the, the actual humans that would be impacted um, were the people who didn't generally have a voice. So the, the person after person after person spoke in favor of this resolution. Hardly any of those folks were from Waterford. They were um, predominantly a group of Proud Boys um, from Oakdale. Uh, one of the folks, a couple folks who were actually known militia members were there in attendance. Um, and I spoke in opposition and one uh, young Latino man spoke in opposition but other than that, it was just person after person in support. And then the council members spoke and each of the five men on the dais said, essentially, I'm not a racist, but. And I genuinely think that they don't generally act in racist ways, right? But again, that systemic racism, that thought of, you know, not thinking about the, the the history of laws like this or policies like this and how they disproportionately impact black and brown people was just appalling to me. Um, that, that particular, and of course it passed unanimously. And again, had no impact on anything other than ensuring the black and brown people in our city knew they weren't safe. So again, it, it impacted no policies. It impacted... <laughs> No, no, no change to state law. It was an act of political theater. So that issue, combined with some uh, local officials' comments around homelessness and using terms like uh, hobos, we don't need those people here. If we bring services for homeless folks here, um, the homeless will flock here. Just all of these kind of just uninformed uh, commentary really made me think, I got to get more involved. Um, so one of the first things that I did uh, was I became a member of the planning commission. And the planning commissions in, in cities are responsible for a lot of the kind of um, housing development plans, business development, kind of the kind of that first line of sight for um, you know policies that come to the city council for approval. Uh, thankfully, I had a strong um, advocate and partner um, in a local Republican. I, I always say he's my favorite Republican, and that's uh, Josh Whitfield. Uh, he'll probably be horrified uh, to be mentioned on your station. Uh, but he's a great guy, and and we don't always see eye to eye, certainly. Uh, but he's a genuine person, and he always tries to make sure that he, you know, he's trying to he's trying to do the right thing. Um, again, sometimes supports policies that 
you know, disproportionately impact people that, that I, that I truly care about. Uh, anyway, so, so he was supportive of me uh, joining the planning commission. And again, planning commission's generally not doing anything controversial. Uh, so I, so I served on the planning commission and then I uh, decided to run for council in 2018. And I will be honest with you that I was not sure I had any chance of winning. Uh, I am a woman. There were no women on the council. I am loud. (laughs) There are loud people on the council uh, for always, right? That's just a way that happens. Uh, But I'm also progressive politically. Um, Waterford has about a 55% majority of Republican and uh, Republican-leaning independents. So, you know, it's a majority, right? So... Uh, but a strong, silent group of Democrats and and liberal leaning folks. So uh, I decided to run and just to to be genuine with who I am. Right? I, if I, you know the the super conservative folks anywhere aren't going to vote for me, regardless of what I say, <laughs> they're just not going to vote for me because they can kind of just they just know. Um, and so I, I decided to run. And I ran as a progressive person. I ran as someone who was concerned about the housing issues. You know, we have we have many, many families in Waterford who aren't unsheltered homeless, but they definitely are homeless. Um, I've had I have families on my street that there are three to four families living in a single family home, um, often, you know, a, a, a couple with many children in one bedroom. Uh, families living in garages, uh, that is homelessness. And that is the homelessness that we pretend doesn't exist. We don't have a large population of unsheltered homeless, but we we still have them. And they still need options, right? And, and our homeless folks in Waterford are people that were not homeless in Waterford <laughs> initially, right? So they became homeless in Waterford, and they love Waterford, and Waterford is their community. So this idea that they should have to move somewhere else to go live in a shelter with hundreds of people they don't know is just not acceptable. So the way that I talked to my neighbors when I knocked on doors about homelessness and housing was really more about the housing side, like not and not even low income housing. And I'm using air quotes there because that, again, is a thing that kind of tends to turn people off, but really kind of this like like let's get started housing right so the you're you found yourself single unexpectedly or you're a young person starting out or you're coming out of homelessness or you are downsizing kind of these these initial places to find housing and what really spoke to a lot of voters to me a lot of my neighbors were people whose young adult children were still living at home <laughs> So they recognize, like, I love having my kiddo close by, but I maybe the bedroom next to me is a little too close. And their their kids didn't want to move out of Waterford because it's a great place to live. But they didn't even want to move to Modesto, right? It just was it was not nearby enough to be part of this close knit community that they'd grown up in. But there's nowhere for them to live. So that was a lot of conversation, and it's it's slow going. Uh, we just built seventy five new homes, and they sold for almost half a million dollars. So uh, that that is uh, part of the reason for that is the cost of housing. So so we do have some other projects underway to to help to address that, and the other pieces that really uh, spoke to, that I really spoke out about was safe places to play. Um, access to safe parks is a healthcare issue as well, right? So having a place where you can, where you can play and you can be safe. Uh, Waterford is divided by Highway 132 and 
east of high. Let me let me do the math. South of Highway 132, which is the side of the town I live on, is the the side that uh, abuts the Tuolumne River. And there is not really parks on that side of town. There is, of course, the river and the trails there, but not like a park with a jungle gym and those types of things uh, for people with with young children. Or just grass where you can go and run around. It's just not there. Or a soccer field. Or a soccer field, right? Um, There isn't a soccer field of any kind in Waterford. Um, The the north side of town, which is where the majority of the housing is, uh, does have some parks. We have uh, Beard Park, which is a lovely, a lovely park there. So that was, again, another thing where people wanted to, they wanted to spend their money in Waterford and they wanted to do their activities in Waterford and they wanted to have their places for kids to go. So again, neither of these things are particularly liberal, right? (laughs) It shouldn't be wacky and progressive (laughs) to want, you know, your your young adult children to grow up and move out, right? And it shouldn't, and they shouldn't have to move to another part of the state or another part of the country in order to be successful. It shouldn't be controversial to want to have a place, some green space where you can go play and you can explore. Uh, those things just weren't controversial. Um, and I, I have a feeling that uh, certainly the desire to flip Congress and uh, the, the activism that came along with Josh Harder's first campaign uh, played a part because we had a lot more door knockers. But I will tell you, I knocked on those doors myself also, and that was just a thing that didn't happen in Waterford. So I, I decided that I was just going to outwork them, right? Um, I had two opponents. It's a top two election in Waterford uh, every two years um, some of the seats over, you know, two of the seats overturn, you know, turnover, and and they're the top two win. Um, I ended up coming in second place, but that's a time where second place is still first place. Um, and honestly, the the first place person, um, you know, he campaigned as well. Um, he his his dad is pretty well known in the community as well, so he had a little bit of name recognition there. He certainly didn't put the uh, the amount of work in that I did, but but he certainly he did campaign. Um, the third place person didn't. He you know he just kind of was like I'm popular, I'm going to win, and he didn't. He you know and so that's what I'm trying to do for this election too is just use all the tools that I've gained working on other campaigns and working in political activism types of things, um, not only to win my election but help my my other candidates win as well. Uh, yeah, so it's just a matter of, of outworking them. And, and and I really, I got involved because I just couldn't sit by and let, you know, people who weren't really being thoughtful of the impact their policies would have, um, you know, be the only ones who had a voice. And if no one's going to show up to those city council meetings, they're talking to me as their council member, right? It's It's at large. So every resident of Waterford is my constituent. They're talking to me. And when we did a pride proclamation at our last meeting, um, in the, the recent we had meeting we had most recently in June, families of LGBTQ youth reached out to me. Our LGBTQ adult residents reached out to me and said, thank you. This helps me feel safer. Right. And I probably lost votes from doing that, but I don't care, right? Because those folks weren't gonna vote for me anyway. And I'm not, I'm not standing up for humans having value as a way to get votes, right? It's just the right thing to do, right? Um, I'm bi, I have a a pansexual kiddo, like this is just a thing (laughs) that that exists in our community and and people deserve love and respect. Um, And as a result, we're having a pride pride barbecue tomorrow 
um, at Beard Park, which is, again, is that big, lovely park. Um, and there are some people who are mad, but I, I hope the community shows up in support um, and, and in love and in just acknowledgement of, of the people in our community that they love and respect uh, having a little day of celebration. You're listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and streaming at kcbpradio.org. I'm your host, Linda Scheller. Our guest today is Liz Talbot. I saw you at the Bands Off Our Bodies march, and I understand you were instrumental in putting that together. Please talk about how that all came to be. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to tell you about that. So again, as I've mentioned, um, I, I worked in reproductive health, reproductive justice for most of my most of my life now, certainly the, the majority of my of my career. So I love the Ani DeFranco quote, to split yourself in two is the most radical thing you can do. And if that shit ain't up to you, you simply are not free, right? So that to me is so important. And I think that we forget the power that women hold in our bodies. Um, and and that is that is women's power, right? And it is our responsibility to hold that power. So um, having worked at Planned Parenthood and in reproductive health, I can tell you with confidence that women are not flippantly deciding to seek an abortion. But it's also not necessarily the worst decision of a woman's life, right? For, for many women, it is they don't want to be pregnant right now. This is not the right time. This is not the right environment. This is not the right partner. This is not the right experience. Um, and then there are also many women who seek abortions of very wanted pregnancies because of an issue with their own health or the health of the developing fetus that just is not compatible with life. And then there are, you know, there are women in between uh, and, and, and trans men, right, who, who are kind of in various places of that spectrum. So um, when, when, I will tell you, when Bush became president, Bush Jr., when he became president, there was a lot of talk of like, well, here goes Roe v. Wade. And I kept saying, like, it's just not going to happen, right? Even when the Republicans had the House, they just didn't do it, right? Um, And part of it was that they knew they didn't have the votes, right? And that's often how they make their decisions, right? Whether it's a good policy or bad policy or will harm humans or not, they go by whether they have the votes. Unfortunately, they now have the Supreme Court, so this became a big wake-up call for a lot of people of, wow, this could really happen. And I really wanted to not have it be a march or a rally in which the attitude might be like, glad we're safe in California, right? Because again, that's that that scarcity mindset, right? That kind of othering mindset of like, Lucky to be here, because again, for the majority of Californians with uteruses, Roe v. Wade being overturned isn't going to make it harder for them to get access to abortion. Now, we certainly have places in our state where access to abortion is an issue. We have counties where there are no abortion providers, um, certainly our rural and more frontier areas that just is more difficult. So it's not as if, uh, you know, that the, the equitable access exists even within California. 
So when I saw that there was uh, kind of a bookmarked uh, location, a Planned Parenthood rally, I reached out to Planned Parenthood because I, I still have contacts there to say, hey, who's organizing this? Because I'd love to help out. And honestly, my intention was genuinely that. Like I was going to organize volunteers. I was going to get them bottled water, all of that. And, and Patsy Montgomery, who's uh, the phenomenal public affairs person from Planned Parenthood, Marmonte, who's retiring in a, in a couple weeks, uh, she was like, hey, nobody's organizing it yet. Would you like to do it? I was like, sure, sign me up. So even though I'm now the county Democratic Party chair and <laughs> the primary was coming up, I was like, sure, let's do another thing on top of that. Um, so that was how that started. And I, I knew that we had a lot of other like local activists who were really involved, uh, people like Lisa Batista, who's a local attorney. I knew she was on board. So reached out to those folks. We have a lot of women who have been in this work for longer than I've been alive. Um, I won't say their names because now I've I've made it seem like they're... <laughs> They're older, um, but you know, women who this has been their fight, their whole their whole adult lives as well. So I contacted those women, some of whom spoke at the event. I also we have also had some other women's rights marches and things over the past few years, and I really tried to think of who are the women that I met at those events that just hearing their stories as we marched or as I kind of got to know them because I would often volunteer at those events too. I thought these are the these are the voices that we need to hear. We don't necessarily need to hear all these political officials uh, reading us their speeches, right? We need to hear from people whose lives would be impacted or people who represent communities whose lives would be impacted. So I invited local activists like Julissa Ramirez, who's just, she's amazing. Navora Edmonds is amazing. Just all of these local folks um, to just to come and lift their voices and, and, and to just really speak out of, of the impact that this decision will have. Uh, maybe not so much in California, but certainly on, on women and, and you know, people that can get pregnant anywhere in the country. And then we marched uh, just just a couple blocks down down there to McHenry and Brinksmore and and got certainly got more uh, positive honks than negative honks. Um, we did have one incident of uh, of a passerby in a car throwing water at us, um, but honestly, it was like f- literally refreshing. Uh, so it was because <laughs> it was such a hot day. Yeah, um, you know. So so again, and that really kind of spurred for many people their it was a wake up for them about the primary as well. So um, I, I think it's important to, to remember that in every election, whether it's a local primary, whether it's their city council race, or it's, you know, whatever the whatever the office is, rights are on the ballot, right? And so that might be rights um, such as abortion rights or uh, the right to vote, but it also can be just the, the right to have people who, speak your values, represent you in in those races, such as city council or school board, um, sheriff's department, those types of races, board of supervisors. And all of those races are elected officials who are going to inform policy. Um, And all of those policies can can have such a, a significant impact on our lives. What would you like to see happen going forward in any of these subjects we've been discussing? I, you know, I, I really hope that people continue their enthusiasm uh, for um, 
lifting up their voices and, and speaking out because, you know, the turnout for this primary wasn't great, but it also wasn't as bad as people expected. It looks like it's going to be around 30% turnout, which is, again, not good. Um, I would love to see 90%. I don't know that we will ever have that. But certainly, I think we'll have more interest in the November election. So I think just making sure people stay tuned in Everything is so overwhelming right now. I mean, there's so much news. You know, COVID is still here. Um, you know, there's monkeypox. You know, like there's all of these things, right, that, that people can just become overwhelmed and the desire exists, rightfully so, to try to tune things out. Uh, but I think if people can remember that, that these policies and these issues uh, – still exist for the people that are being impacted by them, whether you as a person with more privilege decide you can't deal with it today, right? So, I mean, people were talking about, I saw so many posts yesterday and today about make sure it's not too hot outside for your dog, right? You know, make sure your dog has water, bring your dogs in, bring your pets in. And I didn't see as many posts about make sure our humans can come in, right? Not a lot of posts around cooling centers and just the fact that like we even have to find a place for someone to not die of heat stroke, right? And these are issues that elections can help fix. Because if we don't have the right people making policies, it's even it's just so much harder to make change. We do have a lot of great community-based organizations that I would love to have you know, them just say, I'm sorry, we can't take more volunteers because we have too many, right? Uh, no, 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 we don't need any more donations, right? I mean, it would just be, that would be awesome. Uh, but we are not in that place. Uh, I know all of our local candidates for office struggle to find volunteers. Mm. A lot of our community-based organizations can't provide services at the level they were before because they have trouble finding volunteers. Um, a lot of our um, kind of tried and true Volunteers and activists have had to step back because they are rightfully concerned about COVID, and many of them are older or in you know in in you know immunocompromised or in other in other situations where that becomes riskier for them. So it becomes even more important for people who are younger, people who are uh, you know maybe just kind of starting out in in some activism to 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 really find those opportunities to to step up and speak out. Would you please mention a few of the organizations locally where people could either volunteer or donate to? Yeah, sure. So certainly Planned Parenthood. Um, and my recommendation for donations to Planned Parenthood is to donate directly to the Modesto Health Center. Um, and and if you donate to the Planned Parenthood Federation, like the National Planned Parenthood, um, that do, that money does not go to your local Planned Parenthood, uh, and it's it's as easy as I mean, you can go to the Planned Parent, you can Google Planned Parenthood Marmonte and donate to them directly. That's their affiliate, um, or you can literally like mail or walk in a check <laughs> to the clinic. Uh, they're on McHenry Avenue. Like, just bring them their money. First of all, you're going to make their week uh, because <laughs> people just don't yes. do that. Um, and the funds that go that are donated to the Modesto Health Center can only be used at the Modesto Health Center. So if you want to have real impact on the lives of local people, that is one way to do that. Um, there are other organizations um, I'm thinking about, like El Concilio, um, the National Rural Legal Assistance um, um, organizations like that that are really looking at kind of justice issues. Um, 
those are some organizations that I would recommend. And certainly people that want to give politically, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Those donations aren't tax deductible. So if that makes a difference for folks, um, they could certainly, um, they could certainly pursue other options. But you know, you could donate to the local Democratic Party, uh, because our funds go directly to get local Democrats elected. And um, that, you know, that's super important. So that's standems.org. I think donating to the Peace Life Center is a great idea. Um, you, know, you know, these organizations that are really trying to turn the curve in these issues that are so important, not only locally, but nationally and across the world. Any last words that you'd like our listeners to bear in mind? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, never doubt the power of one person, right? We, we each individually can make a huge impact. And if you find something that you're passionate about, bring along some friends, right? And have that, that expanding, ever-expanding circle of, of impact. Great. Thank you. Our guest today has been Liz Talbot. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and streaming at kcbpradio.org. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch. This has been Laura Stokes and Linda Scheller. We hope you will catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening.